Welcome everyone to the Energy One Podcast, the show that takes you inside the dynamic world of energy. Join us as you explore the latest trends, technologies, and innovations shaping the industry today. We're here to uncover the stories that drive progress and sustainability in this critical field. I'm your host, Marion Suzuki, and this is the Energy One Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Ladybug Energy, your Texas energy guide. Dive into options and ditch confusion. Compare, choose, and conquer your perfect energy plan. Visit ladybugenergy.com for smart, simple power choices. Welcome back to the Energy One Podcast. In today's episode, we're shifting gears to explore the crossroads of clean energy and financial empowerment. We're joined by Andy Posner, founder and CEO of Capital Good Fund. This unique nonprofit is not only making renewable energy more attainable for financially constrained families, but also offering a lifeline through small, impactful, and human-centered loans. We will delve into the human side of clean energy adoption and the ripple effects it can have on communities and individual lives. So stick around, get comfortable, and enjoy the episode. Hello, Andy. Welcome to the show. How's it going? It is going very well. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming to the show today. Could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what led you to found Capital Good Fund? Absolutely. So first of all, my name's Andy. I'm the founder and CEO of Capital Good Fund, and we are a nonprofit that's also certified as a community development financial institution, which is a U.S. Treasury certification. And the reason that we're talking is because our mission is kind of at the intersection of both poverty, climate change, and, and racial justice. We do loans and leases and financial coaching for low to moderate income families for a variety of things, including energy efficiency and solar and battery storage, both for homeowners and nonprofits. So the story of starting Capital Good Fund is I was getting a master's in environmental studies from 2007 to 2009. And back then, there was a lot of innovation happening in the clean energy financing space. This is when Jigger Shaw, who now runs the DOE's Loan Programs Office, was leading Sun Edison and doing a lot of innovation around solar leases and PPAs. There was property assessed clean energy. And so I was really excited about how you could develop financial instruments that unlock the potential of energy efficiency and clean energy. I don't have a background in financial services, so this was all new to me. And then, of course, in 2008, the financial system collapsed. And when that happened, I didn't understand the connection between Lehman Brothers going bankrupt and a low-income person being foreclosed on or losing their job. That led me down a path of learning about redlining and predatory lending and other discriminatory practices. And so I was basically seeing how financial services could unlock good or how it could be a tool of oppression and harm. And ended up coming up with this idea of starting a lender that would operate at the intersection, like I said, of poverty and climate. So we would try to do both. And this was back when Ben Jones was first talking about the green collar jobs idea. So I was reading about that and was realizing that you know the climate is kind of a, an issue that touches on everything else and that we could try to solve all these things at once, potentially. We got started in February of 2009. And then here we are 15 years later, we're in 10 states. We've done $37 million in loans with a 97% repayment rate. And I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but we just launched our solar leasing program. Hey, that's great. Thank you for setting the background. Here at Energy One, we usually focus a lot on renewable energy, energy efficiency and such. But before we dive into that side of things, could you elaborate on the services that Capital Good Fund provides? And I know you also destroyed this following question, but how does your approach differ from that of a traditional bank, for example? 
Yeah. And I think to the point of climate touches on everything, even though not all of our loans are related to energy or climate, the folks that we serve are disproportionately impacted by rising energy prices, by climate change and the like, because we focus on low-income folks, people of color, women, immigrants, and the like. So our loan products, we have three categories of them. We have a small dollar program under $1,500 for things like catching up on utilities, rent, car repair, paying off a high interest loan. We have an immigration program up to $20,000 for things like citizenship, green card, family petitions. And of course, we know that climate change is resulting in a lot more migration and an immigration loan can help people who are coming to the US seeking asylum. And we do a lot of that. And then thirdly, we have a residential lending program for energy efficiency. And then starting in 2021, we launched a solar leasing program. And how these products differ from other players in the market. So if you look, for example, at a $500 loan that we offer, it's at 12% interest. A payday loan in Rhode Island of $500 has an interest rate of 261%. So not only are we helping people build their credit, we're also saving them hundreds of dollars in interest and fees. And we also offer financial coaching to impact their lives beyond just the loan itself. You can find similar differences across our products. So for example, in the solar lending space, there are a lot of entities that will come in and charge a hidden 50% dealer fee or a teaser rate. We don't do any of that. We don't charge any fees of any kind. So really across the board, we're more transparent, we're lower cost, we're more equitable in our servicing and our underwriting policies and procedures and practices. Now, a lot of that's driven by the fact that we're a nonprofit. We don't have investors who are requiring us to generate a certain return. We do have some grant dollars that can subsidize our operations so we can pass those savings on to customers. And of course, we're just purely mission aligned. That's great. Thank you for sharing. Now let's lean our conversation more towards the energy side of things a little bit. Just a bit of context first. Despite the cost of renewable energy having decreased greatly in the past decades, it's still not quite in reach of those who need it the most. Innovation, clean energy, and their benefits have rarely been accessible to households that have lower income. How do you feel that your organization is shifting this paradigm? Yeah, to the point of falling energy prices for solar, I put my first solar installation on a condo I bought after I graduated from grad school. I believe I paid $7 a watt, and this was in 2011. And then I just put a solar array on my home in Los Angeles, where my wife and I moved two years ago, and I paid like $280 a watt. It's kind of incredible. But to your point, those benefits have not flown equally. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is that the investment tax credit, which the Inflation Reduction Act brought back up to 30%, is a credit and not a refund. So if you don't have any taxable income, that tax credit doesn't do you any good. It can only offset a tax liability. So it's literally the definition of a regressive policy. And we actually advocated to make that tax credit refundable and it was stripped out of the final version of what became the Inflation Reduction Act. So that's one barrier. And then you have other barriers like companies are disinclined to sell in low-income communities because they're worried about, they, they think it's riskier, their homes are smaller, so they're not going to make as much money. And then what you end up with is the people who do sell in those areas are the more predatory actors, the kind of door knockers who are promising free solar. And then there's just strict underwriting criteria and mistrust among low-income homeowners. And then we launched our loan program in 2021, like I mentioned, and even then we struggled to do solar loans for low-income people 
because of the lack of refundability of the credit, like I mentioned. And then also as interest rates started to rise, even we had to raise our rates a bit because we do borrow the money that we lend out. And if you take out the tax credit and you're charging 6 7% on a loan, you're not able to deliver day one savings. Another challenge is that if you're low income, you may save money day one, but let's say you unexpectedly have to sell the home in three to five years. You're not likely to have recouped your investment yet, and you may not have enough equity in the home or enough of a premium on the sale of the home to pay off the loan. And so now you potentially are stuck with debt. And then there's concerns about operations and maintenance. So for all those reasons, when we saw in the Inflation Reduction Act that the commercial tax credit, what's called Section 48, was made refundable to nonprofits, I immediately realized, okay, solar leasing is the way to go for doing this for low-income families. Under that very same context, what do you feel is the general sentiment that these communities have towards green energy today? One of the reasons I'm so passionate about doing solar for low-income families is that while from a climate change perspective, the fastest route potentially to reducing emissions is just building you know, massive solar farms. I say potentially because interconnection queues are delaying that, but still, you know, arguably you get more climate bang for your buck, but we need more policy beyond just the Inflation Reduction Act. And I worry that if low-income families continue to not see the equal benefits of these policies, it's going to be difficult to ask them to keep supporting them. I mean, eventually, if we needed a carbon tax or what have you, you're going to need broad base of support. And the best way to get that support is for low-income families to directly benefit from clean energy. So I think that's probably the biggest thing. And so a lot of low-income families, they go to a wealthy neighborhood, they see solar panels. In their neighborhood, they don't see any solar panels. And this has had real-world impact. So for example, in California, the Public Utilities Commission just created net metering 3.0, which reduced the value of net metered energy. And the argument they used was in part that low-income families are not getting solar, and so they're disproportionately bearing the cost of subsidizing higher-income people's residential solar. It's a dubious argument potentially, but I mean, there is some validity to it, and you could certainly rebut it more easily if there was actually low-income solar. So I think there's that, and then there's also just I mean, these door knockers, I mean, you talk to people, they're very skeptical because there's people going around saying, oh, you get free solar, it's a government program, you end up with sketchy leases, horror stories, and so on. So that's why when we designed our program, we partnered with municipalities, with faith communities, nonprofits, and community leaders to kind of have their imprimatur to say to the community, if you hear about a solar program and it's the Georgia Bright, which is the name of our program, trust it still verified, but it's like the one that we're supporting. If you hear some other guy who's just like selling you solar, like as though they're selling you, you know, roof shingles, be very skeptical. So that's been a key thing. And we launched two weeks ago. We've already gotten 90 inquiries and we're ready to schedule our first two signings next week for low-income homeowners to do solar and storage. What are some of the unexpected challenges or discoveries that you've come across in all these years running your organization? <laughs> There's a lot. I mean, I think as it relates to clean energy... There's a couple in particular. One of them is the challenge of vetting contractors. I mean, ultimately, the clean energy revolution is going to happen at the point of sale between a contractor and a customer, whether that's a nonprofit or a homeowner or business or whatever. And a contractor is a contractor in many ways. And so we all have skepticism about that. So figuring out a means by which you properly vet the installer and oversee them, because 
the last thing you want is to have horror stories where a customer has a bad experience and they're out money, but then also we're out money. Because again, we're borrowing, like I said, the money that we use to fund these systems. So if we had a lot of bad actors and we defaulted, that would hurt our ability to do this at more scale. The other one is just when it comes to energy efficiency, and we've done about 1,500 heat pump loans over the years, for example. That's something where people need to fix it urgently because the AC broke and it's hot, for example. And the challenge right now is still that the guy or woman that goes to your house, they're going to want to put the thing that's on the truck, which is usually not a heat pump. So having that conversation with the homeowner when they need an urgent fix about the more expensive repair that will be cheaper over time is a challenge still. Then when it comes to solar, you know, no one's dying to have solar. I mean, it's like whether you do it or not, not the most urgent thing in the world. And so making the process smooth for people so that they're really busy and you're not trying to add this huge load on top of them, you know, it's it's a challenge because going solar is not easy in the US. The interconnection, the permitting process. So what we're trying to do from our end is make our process as easy as possible. Simple application, easy to understand lease agreement, and then have the installer and our team handle as much of it as possible. But it can be a tough sell. And then, you know, more broadly, just the challenge of raising capital to do this. Because in order to deliver savings to low-income families, you really need to borrow at a fairly low interest rate. And right now, interest rates are, you know, if we were borrowing at market rates, it would be something like 8 10 12%. If we borrowed at that rate, it wouldn't work. We couldn't deliver savings to low-income families. So we end up having to get a lot of money from foundations or more mission-aligned investors. And it you know, it just takes us longer to raise the capital. This was different in the interest rate environment two years ago, but that's interest rates have been a challenge. And then you know, supply chain issues, the cost of a battery, it's kind of a moving target. Interconnection processes, they vary by utility. The policy changes. So like we're doing this in Georgia that doesn't have net metering. So that is a, it's a market where we're needed because absent us, no one's doing solar really, but it's just very difficult. And even like in California, all of a sudden the incentives became less attractive. So there's a lot of challenges, but we're solving for them. Yeah, that is true. Interest rates have been very difficult across the board in the recent years. Okay. So now let's talk a little bit about the future. What is the next step for a capital good fund? Are there any upcoming initiatives or projects that you're excited about? Yeah. I mean, we spent the last 10 months almost exclusively focusing on launching this lease program. It is, to my knowledge, the first solar lease in the US, could be corrected, but to my knowledge, where a nonprofit is the lessor. So we, the nonprofit, own the system. We install it on the home of a low-income homeowner or a nonprofit or church, for example. And then we lease it to them for amount that's less than their previous utility bill. And then we handle the operations and maintenance. And the reason we can do that, again, is because we can now monetize the 30% tax credit, as well as any adders like the energy community adder. So while we're about to sign our first two leases, I mean, this is a multi-billion dollar need and opportunity for us over the next 10 years. So we're focused on optimizing the program, raising more capital. One of the most exciting things at the moment is the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, which is $27 billion of the Inflation Reduction Act allocated, the application process actually just closed for a lot of those programs. And so we put in a submission, for example, for a $250 million grant for doing more low-income solar in Georgia. If we get that grant, we will do 8,000 single-family leases for low-income families over the next five years. So the scale of growth and opportunity that we're looking at 
is tremendous. And a lot of other states are looking to our model to be replicated either by us or for us to provide technical assistance for a local group to do that. In addition, we are looking at potentially launching end of next year an EV lease because it turns out that the commercial EV tax credit is also available to nonprofits as a refund. So we could do a program where we buy the EV, we own it, we claim the tax credit, and then we lease it to a, a low-income driver. We'll see what the timeline is. It's going to be very complicated, I'm sure. But in any event, there's a lot of things like that. And then I could see us, you know, the economics of charging are still not great. We actually have an EV charging station in our parking lot, a level three, and we basically break even, you know. But as the economics start to get better, I could see us getting into like leasing EV stations to like nonprofits that want to host charging stations in their parking lot, for example. It's fascinating. I never thought that leasing EV would be a thing. So one of the things that's interesting is that the commercial EV credit isn't subject to the same restrictions that the individual credit is. So I believe any electric vehicle, if it's owned by a commercial entity, can claim the $7,500 credit. It doesn't have those same you know, domestic content and all those requirements. So that's why a lot of EV makers right now are pushing leases because that's the way they can deliver more lower price to the buyer. This is a really great and exciting future ahead of us. And uh, still speaking about the future, what impact do you hope that your organization will have in it? Yeah, I mean, of course, we want to decarbonize and reduce emissions by as much as possible. But as I mentioned before, there are probably faster ways to do it than a bunch of four kilowatt systems on low-income homes. So not only am I looking to do that, but I'm also looking to engage more citizens in the clean energy revolution to be bought into it, to see the benefits of it, to start businesses in it, to work in it, to save money as a result of it and support policies for it. Additionally, we're working to create jobs. So for example, in our program, one of our installers is a black woman owned solar installer who hires, among others, returning citizens. So people have been released from prison, you know, for nonviolent offenses, but still. So it's creating jobs in the community. She's a local woman. It's building wealth. So for us, it's really demonstrating that you don't have to operate on parallel tracks. I mean, this is very much the environmental justice argument. The Biden administration is their Justice 40 initiative. But it's one thing to say environmental justice. It's another thing to run a program that actually does reduce emissions, creates jobs for people that need them, saves low-income people money. And I believe that we can do that at scale for us, but also that we can create models that can be replicated by others. Moreover, we want to transform markets. So for example, in Georgia, one of our goals is to have a program that's so successful that the Public Service Commission and the state legislature decides to at least create a carve-out for low-income net metering. Because if you did that, now you could have the sunruns of the world operate profitably in Georgia. And now we crowd in more competitors in the marketplace, we bring down prices, we do more decarbonization work. So we're interested in advancing good policy, bringing more people in the marketplace, and reaching as many consumers and nonprofits as possible with our programs. Now, as we approach the end of our episode, let's lighten the mood a bit and delve into some more relaxed topics, shall we? Andy, do you have any cases or success stories that you'd like to share with us today? Something you just can't forget. Yeah, I mean, we've done 13,000 loans and had 2,000 people go through our financial coaching. So there's quite a bit. One story that I find particularly exciting is, especially because I'm the son of an immigrant, my mother emigrated here from Ukraine in the 70s, and we've been have, doing our immigration loans since day one. 
we had a woman who initially came to us for a loan to get a green card back in 2011. Took out the loan, was able to do that. As a result, she was able to start a cleaning business. Her credit score went up because of the loan. She took out a subsequent loan to fix her car, further improved her credit. She did our financial coaching. She was able to build a debt management plan, build her credit even more. As a result of that, she was able to buy a home. Once she had a home, she was able to take out her energy efficiency loan to save money. So she now has more cash flow. And now she's looking at getting a solar loan. So that is, I can't claim that that's the trajectory for every one of our clients, but you think about it as someone who started with us undocumented, now has a green card, has her own business, excellent credit, has a home with equity in it, has energy efficiency, and will soon be going solar. That's just the dream scenario for us. That's really the kind of thing that warms your heart, right? Just following the person throughout their lives like that. That's why we do this. I mean, we're very different from a, you know, a Sunrun or whatever, or any other lender that's just very transactional. You know, their metric of success is we originated the loan, got paid back, and we got the spread that we were looking for. If we had 100% of our payment rate, but we weren't changing lives of people that needed it, then I would go home. I mean, that's not what we do. That's not the goal of a nonprofit. So we build long-term relationships with people. And, you know, for example, one of the things that's different about us is that when COVID hit, we were in a position to reach out to every single one of our clients and offer them no questions asked deferments. Banks and others weren't necessarily able to do that because they have other types of economic pressures to generate returns for investors. So it's just a different ballgame being a nonprofit. Now, being a nonprofit entails other challenges, like not necessarily having as much capital available to invest in growth and the like. But certainly the reason for doing this hard work is those impact stories. It is wonderful. And we are also aware that you are a writer, an avid reader, and also a poet, in fact. So I'd really like to ask, are there any books that you'd like to recommend to our listeners today? So I'm going to mention two that are a little outdated and a third one that I just read. The ones that are outdated are Banker to the Poor by Muhammad Yunus, which he won the 2006 Nobel Peace Prize, and he's sort of a, considered the father of microfinance. He also wrote another book, the title, which is escaping me, but it's about social business. It's a good starting point. There's another one by a guy named David Bornstein called How to Change the World, which I found very inspiring because it gave so many examples about of innovative ways that people are changing the world. And then I just read a novel called The Deluge. It's not a very uplifting read. It's about kind of the climate change future, but it's very well written and I greatly enjoyed it. It envisions realistic pathways, I think, to how we might deal with the climate crisis, even as it accelerates. Right. Thank you for the suggestions. And the last but not least, a question that is a bit more introspective for us. If you could get a few words out to everyone in the United States or maybe even the world, what would you say? I would say that everyone wants to do good or most, almost everyone. But I think a lot of people who are maybe a little misguided about how they think about that. So the typical trajectory is, you know, I'm going to do my job and then donate some of my money or do some volunteer work. Or when I retire, maybe I'll work in the social sector or volunteer more. And what I want people to hear is that we really have the solutions we need to solve most of the challenges we face. What we lack are people to implement them and the policies and the capital which means if you have money, what we need is for you to invest it at concessionary rates in innovative programs domestically and abroad, or to donate money to those programs. We don't need you to keep making more money and then eventually invest it. And we don't need you working and making a lot of money. I'd much rather you work for us, take a slightly lower paycheck, 
and help us implement the solutions. So it's both a cause for optimism that I really do believe we know how to solve whatever challenge it is that we face, poverty, hunger, climate, overfishing, et cetera. But we need people to do it and it's a hard slog. And the way to do it isn't as like something you do after hours. If you work for 60 hours a week at Goldman Sachs financing palm oil in Borneo, and then you donate 10% of your income to, I don't know, Greenpeace, that doesn't work. I'd rather you work for Greenpeace and have no money to donate. That's a really good note for us to end on. Now, if someone has a burning question or would like to reach out to you or Capital Good Fund, how can they go about it? Yeah, our website is capitalgoodfund.org. We operate in 10 states. So if someone is in need of one of our products or services, they can certainly apply. Folks can also donate to us or invest. So we allow people to lend us money and, and actually earn a rate of return and that we use it to support our lending and leasing operations. People can feel free to email me directly. It's andy at capitalgoodfund.org. I'm happy to chat if they want to know about job opportunities in the sector, book recommendations, they want to hear about our model, just reach out. All right, perfect. Thank you so much for sharing your time, your thoughts, and your philosophy with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to chat. And as always, all books, links, and information will be in our show notes. With that out of the way, I think we're good to end it here. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next time. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Energy One Podcast. Stay connected and join the conversation. Reach out to us at info at energyonepodcast.com. Join us next time as we keep exploring this industry and the brilliant minds that make it all possible. 